and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I am Tyler Smith. I am David Bax. And thank you for listening. David. Yes. How you doing? Well, I, I've noticed something. Okay. I notice this every year, um, and I've only just now thought to bring it up on the podcast. So, it's fall movie season. I mean, now fall movie season is over, yeah. I guess, but it would still, you know. It's Oscar season. Yes, it's say. award season up until yeah. up until the Oscars, it's still going on. Uh, and, you know, a lot of these movies, these prestige movies, mm-hmm. um, they come out around Christmas time. Yeah. Have you ever noticed how many of them, and this happens every year, take place at least partially at Christmas? Like, Brooklyn has Christmas yeah. part in it. I think um, Carol obviously does. Yeah. Um, I want to say Joy has uh, Christmas I stuff believe so, in yes. It. Like... And this seems to happen every year where it's mm. like, this is a regular prestige drama, but there's some part of it that takes place at Christmas. And I wonder if that, where that's coming from. Well, it could be a combination of things. One is Oscar movies are often family films by what, not films for the whole family, but films about family, films about family. And so how are you going to get a bunch of family members together and have it not be just, you know, um, a day in the life kind of thing. So it's like, okay, well, special occasion. Well, what's this? Okay. Well, what are, what's a special occasion that is relatable to everybody? Okay. Well, Thanksgiving and Christmas yeah. and Christmas, you know, it has the added, um, it's not merely people getting, sitting down and eating and talking. There's also the stress of buying presents, receiving presents and all that sort of thing. Um, and, it also just there's so much iconography that can be very striking around Christmas time. You know, okay. if you have, let's say you have a couple like arguing amidst Christmas lights, you know, I see or, or next to a yeah. Christmas tree or something like that. I think uh, I hope you're right. I, I, I was seeing it as something maybe a little more calculating. Oh, okay. Like, well, I'll put some Christmas stuff. It'll give this movie the that prestige feel because prestige movies come out around this time of year. Uh. I don't know. I feel like there's some sort of, in, uh, I feel like there's something intentional about including Christmassy stuff in otherwise non Christmassy movies because they're coming out around Christmas. You know what it could also be? Okay. Actually, I'm listening. It also is a good marker of the, of a passage of time, That's which true. is you yeah. show people doing whatever you like. If you show people during the summer and then you want to show them in the spring, you have a little bit of a little winter there and what, and the best way to show winter aside from snow is Christmas. Yeah. So if you're going to have something take place over the course of a year, so that's Carol, that's Brooklyn. Um, you know, I feel like that's, uh, it's a good way to do it. It's, it's almost a, it's a visual shorthand that shows. Oh, okay. I see you're willing to give these movies the benefit of the doubt. Whereas I want to see it as some sort of conspiracy, (laughs) but, uh, well, I'll be as cynical as you want to be, but I feel I'm trying to, you know, we just, look, Dave, we just watched some fun cat videos. I'm in a good did, mood. Yeah. And you got a little Christmas spirit, uh, left over. I guess from, so. From the, from the year. See, I feel like soon as, soon as it's, as it's the next year, as soon as it's January 2nd, okay. I'll say my holiday spirit gets snuffed out on purpose. Cause I want to keep it special. Oh, sure. No, I, I, uh, yeah, it occurs to me. I, I actually took down the tree a lot earlier than usual, uh, this year just to kind of have it over and done with pulling the bandaid off. Cause I do love Christmas and I do get a really strong 
a really strong sadness the day after Christmas because I, I look oh, forward see, to it all year long. But you don't see, I, I see the holidays extending to through January 1st. So I don't get sad the day after Christmas because I kind of feel like it's still Christmas until New Year's. You know? uh, it is, it sort of is. And there is this, a realization that, you know, as I drive around, just because I'm done with Christmas doesn't mean everybody else is. Like, I mean, when I was a kid, yeah. my dad's side of the family, my mom's side of the family, we all lived in California, but in different parts. So we had the Smith family Christmas and then the Sissel family Christmas and then the Dickinson family Christmas over the course of four days. And mm-hmm. so, you know, just because <clears throat> just because for me Christmas is over on the 21st, uh, 25th doesn't mean that on the 26th, 7th or 8th, other people aren't doing it. So I'm okay with it. But for me, when people talk about the holidays, I don't care about New Year's Eve at all. Um, I mean, I like it because it extends my time off from work. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's about it. This year, this New Year's Eve, I don't I didn't do anything. Hmm. I spent time watching a bunch of short films online, uh, many of which were not very good. Um, yeah, I, I, I like... I used to hate New Year's Eve, or I used to posture, I think, that I hated New Year's Eve. Mm. But it turns out I like it. Well, Apart, just, especially now that we live in an age of uh, things like Lyft and Uber, like living sure. in Los Angeles makes New Year's Eve uh, a lot easier because I can go to a party. Mm-hmm. Uh, Have a good time. And I don't have to worry about having to drive home on a night when I've, you know, like trying to watch my intake so I can drive home. Also mm-hmm. knowing that a, there's a lot of drunk people on the road and B there's probably a lot of cops looking yeah. for drunk people on the road. It's, it could be fraught, but, um, now we've got lift and, uh, yeah, it's going to be expensive. You're going to have to factor that into your plans because mm-hmm. they price surge when there's, when the demand is high. Sure. Um, but, uh, it made for a, a great new year's Eve. We went to a, we drove to a party in, uh, Silver Lake, then took a lift home. And then the next day my, uh, uh, wife drove me to my car. <laughs> no, that's nice. So we didn't have to pay for a lift both ways. There you that's go. That's the idea. Well, and it's, that's the thing is <clears throat> with any holiday, there's always going to be an expectation of this is how you should feel. And this is what you should do. Um, uh-huh. you know, there's just as much of that with Christmas sure. uh, as there is with new year's. But the thing is everything that I feel pressured to do is something I hate to do. I don't drink. Right. I hate to be out with crowds. Um, and I don't like watching uh, new year's rock and Eve. So I like to just do other things. In fact, I don't like to really go out because you will get drunken louts, uh, yeah. ruining everything, including movies. And so I just, Jen and I just stay in and I do. And I, it's a nice quiet evening at home where I'm not working. And that's all I care yeah. about. My family used to go see when I was a kid, we would go see a movie every day on new year's Eve. Mm-hmm. Um, you should do that. You should uh, start that up again. Uh, we see a movie. Uh, my my wife and I see a movie <laughs> on Christmas every day, every every day, every year. It's, that's true. Uh, here's here's what has become an odd tradition: is by happenstance, without realizing that it is that it is uh, New Year's Eve, uh, I will find reason. I, I'm not looking for one, but just I have cause to go to Pasadena, uh, which is sucky the day before new year's because, uh, everyone's lining. It's super, there's a lot of traffic cause they're yep. getting ready for the parade and I always forget. And so it's just like, Oh, I gotta go pick, you know, there's a place that in Pasadena where we get our luggage repaired and, uh, or, and what are you doing to your luggage? That we've you had, we've repaired had, so often. 
travel you know uh zipper zippers get broken wheels come off okay uh, you know we've had our same the same luggage for 10 uh, 10 years this makes you sound like in a good way like old-timey aristocracy like you have your good luggage that's going to be with that you're going to pass down to your kids or whatever i just mean that luggage is expensive we got it as a wedding present okay it's expensive now, I, we can't I love this. we can't afford to replace it you know especially when we by just replacing a wheel or or fixing a zipper will give us five to ten more years with this luggage you know what's the what's the issue here that, I, i'm saying i love this i'm not i think it's great i'm not some kind of snooty prince or something like that it's just luggage but people I, have luggage i shouldn't have said aristocracy it just seems old-fashioned in a good way I guess so. Like getting your shoes resold. I have had my shoes resold. Uh, I, uh, I've had this it, pair of brown shoes ever since Chicago. Uh-huh. And uh, I've had, I've, I have purchased and had to repolish them. And I've had the, the, I've had them resold at this point. I, I could probably afford another pair of shoes, but I just like this pair of shoes so much. Um, um, I'll tell you one thing. What's that? New Year's Eve in Pasadena. What's that? If you have a hotel room, New Year's Eve in Pasadena is awesome. I did that one year. It is uh, uh, apparently very hard to uh, get because Jen actually had uh, some relatives in town uh, last New Year's Eve, and they had uh, they had a hotel in Pasadena because they wanted to see the parade, and they told us what the price was, and it was insane. And well, it was also very difficult to get one. Yeah, here's how you get a hotel on New Year's Eve in Pasadena. Okay, um, your dad has to die first. Okay, and then, uh, I'm I'm right there with you. Um, has to have his organs donated. Okay, and then the uh, and then his likeness has to be included in a float for organ donation. Yeah, and then you get invited to sit in the stands at the uh, rose parade. Yes, and there's some sort of hotel room, I guess, uh, goes along with that or something. I don't know. Okay, but I stayed in a hotel room with my family. Then my family came out here because uh, likeness of my dad was in. Uh, uh, a float and the rose parade that uh, you and I was, put together, by the way. Yeah, I know we did. We, yeah. And now it, I don't know where it is. Now. It was, it was hanging on the wall in the basement of my mom's old house. Okay. But, uh, mom moved. I don't know where, I don't know where that, that picture is now. Yeah. But, it was, yeah. that was a, boy, I wasn't expecting to get into this. Uh, we're going to fly through today's topic. It's we damn well better. Uh, listeners, we're going to fly through it like, like a stock car. <sighs> Flying, flying past the fence. I'm sorry. I've lost interest in what you were saying. Um, yeah, uh, that was an odd day because listeners, this has happened, you know, what, five, six years ago at this point? Uh, longer than that, probably. Seven years ago. Seven years oh, ago. Yeah, a little over seven years ago. Okay. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, uh, David and I were, well, David was, and then I chose to help out. Uh, we went over to Pasadena and there was so like where they put together the floats they put together the floats and there's this little circle well no this is a, uh, to give the, the we're in a huge hangar yeah like yeah actual parade floats being put together yeah it's kind of cool but then there's a table of people using what were we using like seeds and seeds and but also and like blue and pet, like flower petals and stuff yeah, different colors to recreate a picture of my dad's face that they had given us as a guide yes we didn't have to do it from scratch right yeah and there were a bunch of other tables of other i'm guessing relatives of deceased people uh putting together pictures of their uh long lost loved ones and here's what i recall 
it was for the most part a pretty somber affair in there you know like people just doing this you know you and i were making a lot of jokes and laughing yeah and we were like the only ones laughing and like having a good time because i guess you know everyone is you know they're looking at a picture of their dead loved one and understandable it's a sad thing and And you and i are just seven in the morning (laughs) it's us that is true yes um but uh but yeah you and i really made a day of it i think you know so it was it was a very strange experience um here's what i remember okay because i love to call you out for being a picky eater in weird ways i wanted to go through a drive-thru like a fast food drive-thru to get breakfast all right and i was like oh there's a there's a jack-in-the-box up here right okay and you were like sure let's go so I go, we go, and I yell my order, and I'm like, what do you want? And you're like, oh, I'm not getting anything. I don't like Jack in the Box. <laughs> so you, I got my Jack in the Box, and you were like, I'm going to Burger King. <laughs> you could have just said, I would prefer Burger King, and I'd be like, oh, I'll wait till we get to Burger King. But you accommodated me in the weirdest way where David, we went through a Jack in the Box drive through and It was you- your day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I remember. You picked me up at like... 6 30 or 7 in the morning yeah and then uh again accommodated my jack-in-the-box craving in a way that made things awkward (laughs) (laughs) yeah i try to be go with the flow and all it does is make things worse (laughs) so listeners there's a fun uh fun story about our our friendship yeah let's pay some bills absolutely all right everybody listen up this episode like every episode or at least the majority over the last year, um, is brought to you by Mubi. Now, what is Mubi? I'll tell you. It's a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Every day, Mubi's curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. So right now, Mubi is celebrating the first films of several amazing filmmakers. Quentin Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, Todd Haynes' Poison, Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire. They are all available now, along with several others. Uh, And there is also a special offer for listeners of Battleship Pretension. You can try Mubi free for a month. Just go to Mubi.com, that's M-U-B-I.com slash Battleship to redeem now. Uh, There's other stuff that uh, we want to talk about. So I did a, a special announcement uh, several days ago about mm-hmm. this, but I wanted to let everybody know uh, this will probably go on for another week and a half to two weeks. The Battleship Pretension end of the year flash sale. So here's what it is. <clears throat> uh, I don't think we ever made an official announcement. We happened to mention it during the movie journal, but I don't think we officially said we are going to Sundance. Uh, oh, yes, we are going to Sundance. Okay. Sundance costs money. And on top of everything else, we do need a new soundboard. Yeah. Uh, and so... How are we going to bring back all this information and opinions indeed. from Sundance and give it to you if we don't have a soundboard that will... Uh, exactly. What, are we going to stand on a street corner? Yeah. Saying like, hey, uh, that uh, yoga, whatever it is, uh, by Kevin Smith, it was not very good. Yeah, we're just gonna, that's going to cut our listenership in half if we have to do it that way. <laughs> <laughs> if you pick the right street corner. Um, so yeah. Uh, so we do, I mean, obviously, you know, I just talked about movie, you know, so we do have sponsors and that's super helpful. Um, but we also cut them a good deal. So we still, uh, could use some money, but we don't 
And while we do uh, allow people to donate, that is not the expectation. You can purchase something yeah, and we get give something, something for yeah. your money. So here's the deal. The flash sale means that you can get our Build Wire premium episode, our episode about the year 2007 with Jason Eakin and Scott Nye, our Lord of the Rings commentaries, which is about nine plus hours yeah. of content, our Alien series commentaries which is also about nine hours Mm -hmm. and then our slasher movie uh, commentaries which comes to about eight hours you can get all of that for twenty dollars yeah that's a big now when you add all that up that actually comes to about 33 so you're getting 13 bucks off because each commentary each series of commentaries is 10 bucks if you were to buy them all together so you get 13 bucks off you get 20 bucks for uh, I think in the area of like 30, 30 to 35 hours of content, uh, which is not bad for 20 bucks and it would help us out tremendously. So, and but, it's also temporary. Yes. Act now. Yeah. Um, we, um, do we know exactly? We'll probably announce on next week's episode what day we're taking this down. Oh, indeed. Right? Yes. Yes. You've yes got absolutely. A, yeah. You've got a week, but not much more than that. So indeed. yeah. So yeah. Uh, take advantage, uh, sometime in the, you know, the minute you hear this, just go to battleship pretension.com on the right side of the page. You will see a thing that says flash sale. Click on that. Uh, we do it through PayPal, but you can use a credit card, debit card, whatever you want, or yeah. your own PayPal account. Uh, this again, you guys get a lot of content. In fact, you get all of our content, all of our premium content. Yeah. Uh, you help out the show and we would very much appreciate it. So there is that. And then lastly, as I talked about last week, um, there is a, uh, our standard end of the year survey is also available at battleship It's on the site. It says survey. Just click on that. It takes a few minutes to fill out. Uh, and it just, you know, which guests you like, which episodes you've liked, which writers you like, how long you've been listening, that kind of thing. And it just helps us to know. And there's also sponsorship information on there as well. So it helps us to kind of know what 2016 should look like yeah. uh as far as what you guys want and that sort of thing so we really appreciate that as well we do um speaking of surveys i recently had uh occasion to have to repeatedly call um Kohl's customer service okay not the uh french dip restaurant downtown but k-o-h-l oh okay i i, I assumed uh, it was going to be the french yeah i got it yeah no um and uh i would when i would get to the point where i could finally ask to speak to a representative it would say Oh, you've been randomly selected to take a survey after this, after your call. And yet, because I ended up having to call them multiple times, Mm. I got quote unquote randomly selected for this survey Mm. every damn time. I don't think that, I don't think that uh, there's some profiling going on. Or they just survey everybody. Oh, okay. I see. Um, or they attempt to survey. I didn't, I didn't like stay on the line and fill out the survey mm-hmm. even once. So maybe that's why they have to cast such a wide net. Yeah. Look at the 1% of people who actually <laughs> have so little to do or- that after their problem has been resolved, <laughs> they stay on the phone to press buttons more. Um, do you have Yelp? Do, do you have like do a Yelp? Have account? It? Do you have a Yelp account? I do not. I do. And I've reviewed maybe like four or five, like businesses, restaurants usually. Yeah. Um, I only do it if it's favorable. Like if it's, if it's okay. a, a poor review and it's usually like, if it's like an independent place because Yelp reviews are actually helpful for that. Yeah. Um, yeah, and so, uh, and there was a time when I, there was a restaurant that I went to and I thought, man, I like that restaurant. I should write them a, a Yelp review. I sat down to uh, write one. I already had 
You already <laughs> that's yeah. That's well, how positive restaurant? country folks. Uh, no, I've not written them a positive. No, I believe it was uh, Dr. Hogley Wadley's. Oh yeah. I don't even know if they need your help. Everybody knows about Dr. Hogley. Everybody being does know, but you know what? Better safe than sorry. Yeah. All right. Um, and I want to tell you guys real quick about tweakedaudio.com, which is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of styles and colors. They look great and they sound great. We use them regularly. Um, and they are available at a low, low price at tweakedaudio.com. But if you use the, if you use the offer code pretension, at checkout, you'll get one third off that already low, low price and no shipping charges. That's tweakedaudio.com offer code a pretension. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one size fits all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. Grab your copy of the Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. Let's get into it, shall we? Indeed. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, Tyler, but I imagine the listener has noticed that uh, this episode, like every episode of Battleship Retention, every main episode, is numbered. Starts with a number. Okay. You look down at your podcast. Uh, your we we or, haven't run out of numbers and are, are doing letters yet. Uh, not yet. Okay. Um, we, yeah, we will have to cross that bridge when we come to it. For mm-hmm. now, we're still with numbers. Uh, and because this number ends in a zero. Mm-hmm. And also is not divisible by the number 50. Okay, I was going to say Not evenly, yeah. at least. Right, right. Uh, you have, I mean, everything's you have divisible by 50, if you yeah, think about it. if you think about it. Um, not evenly divisible by the number 50. Ends in zero. That means one thing and one thing only. That simple formula will lead you to one in, and one conclusion only, um, that this is a profile episode. That's right. And today... We are doing, we wanted to do someone because we knew we were doing, we had something else to do tonight. So we wanted to, uh, pick someone who had had a shorter career. Yes. Um, and I didn't mean to be morbid about it, but that ended up being someone who died fairly young, unfortunately. Yes. Uh, but we also, have we, have we profiled a, a producer before? I do not think so. No. So this is our first producer. I mean, this guy did other things. Yeah. We'll be talking about him as a producer of major motion pictures. Yeah. And by major, I mean major motion pictures. Yeah. How comfortable are you talking about a producer? Because as I was preparing for this episode, certainly, like, I mean, I looked at each film and looked for common themes and content and tone and then just thought, okay, uh, I mean, I interned for a couple of producers. I have a general idea of what they do, um, but it's hard to know exactly how much to talk about artistic choices well, when I it comes to a producer. I think that will be what's interesting is over the course of the discussion to see if we do see similarities that we mm-hmm. might otherwise chalk up to, uh, you know, the auteur. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Because... Yeah, with a producer, they work with any number of directors. And so if you happen to notice that, hey, these films all kind of look the same and feel the same, but they're all different directors, well, what's the one common denominator? Well, it's the same producer. So they clearly must be going for a certain tone and and just trying to establish, one could say, a brand 
uh, yeah. as far as the, the movies they put out there. Yeah. Um, and I think the, well, the, well, the person we're talking about, we haven't said his name yet, uh, is the late Don Simpson. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, the brand, when I think of, and I want to get, I want to know what you think of when you think of Don Simpson, but when I think of Don Simpson, uh, I think of, well, the eighties and nineties, mm-hmm. but I think of movies that are expensive. <laughs> That's okay. kind of what I think. Like, uh, if you look at, I mean, I guess we can just jump in a little bit here. Um, the first movie on here is, is flash dance, which is in theory, it's, if you take the elements of flash dance, mm. it's a fairly small movie, right? So we're right. trying to be a dancer, but there's so much layered on aesthetically to, um, that, that makes it, uh, uh, but but not necessarily garishly. I think with some of the, with some of his films will get into garishness. Um, and I don't actually love Flashdance, but it does with the way that. Have you seen Flashdance? I have not. Okay. But before we get into it, okay. I wanted to talk about something before we get into specific films. Okay. I wanted to talk about something else about Don Simpson that I always knew, in a general sense, but in researching this episode. I came to have a, a greater appreciation for it. So obviously Don Simpson works with Jerry Bruckheimer, worked with Jerry Bruckheimer. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, and I always, just because, you know, it, it was easy to demonize Jerry Bruckheimer, very easy. Um, I always assumed that once Don Simpson died, cause I always thought that the Simpson Bruckheimer films were better than just the Bruckheimer films. So, I look at Armageddon and mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor and Con Air and Coyote Ugly and all these other things that Bruckheimer did on his own. And I think, yeah, those are shitty. It's like, I'm sure it would be different if Don Simpson was still around. Well, here's something that I noticed and I, and I, uh, I will leave it up to you or we can discuss this because this is not about Jerry Bruckheimer. Mm-hmm. But it is interesting the impact that Don Simpson had on Jerry Bruckheimer. Here's Jerry Bruckheimer, producer, before Don Simpson. Okay. Farewell, My Lovely, uh-huh. which is came out in the 70s, starring Robert Mitchum in the adaptation, uh, Philip Marlowe book. Okay. Um, March or Die, which I don't know about. American Gigolo. Okay. Defiance, which I don't know about. Thief. Oh. Cat People. Young Doctors in Love. Okay. Jerry Bruckheimer after Don Simpson. Con Air, uh-huh. Armageddon, Enemy of the State, Gone in 60 Seconds, Coyote Ugly, Remember the Titans, Pearl Harbor, Black Hawk Down, Bad Company, Kangaroo Jack, Pirates of the Caribbean, Bad Boys 2, and then of course it goes on, but those are the big ones yeah, that I want to talk Road. about. Yeah, you missed Road. Did I? <laughs> um, and so the thing that I want to talk about before we get into specifics is that like, Don Simpson transformed Jerry Bruckheimer into the one we know now. But what's interesting is that Jerry Bruckheimer still, so in a way we could blame Don Simpson for the Jerry Bruckheimer we have, Uh except, I mean, it's not like Jerry Bruckheimer was just some guy walking around and Don Simpson says, Hey, you uh, producer of thief, come over here, kid. I've got this uh, thing about jets and uh, stock car racing. Um, it's, well, that's not, you're, you're jumping ahead with Jess. Right, right. But, um, but I just mean to say that like, it's interesting 
how much impact Don Simpson had on Jerry Bruckheimer, which means Michael Bay, which means action Simon movies. West. Simon West. Just like action movies in general. Because think about it. We wouldn't have Transformers if we didn't have Don Simpson. Now, that's a negative thing. Because, But what I would also say is if Don Simpson had lived longer maybe his movies would have been better because while I don't love a lot of the movies that he produced with Jerry Bruckheimer, um, I do feel like, uh, I do feel like they are of a better quality. And as I looked at, looked through them, I definitely saw some recurring themes that pretty much dropped away once uh don simpson passed away and so anyway I, i'm speaking very broadly right now but, but it's, like it's got, something i wanted to talk sort of about. answer my question which is what do you think of when you think of um don simpson mm-hmm. uh and it's that's an interesting take on that which is what you did think and what you uh or what you did assume and what you now yeah. think um but let's get back to flash dance um which is a on the page a Smaller scale movie, mm-hmm. maybe like the things that Jerry Bruckheimer was sure. interested in before. Yeah, but it has so much money pumped into the look of it and the mm-hmm. the you know there's that that very um, that very eighties look. We now I don't know if it came from uh, Flashdance, but um, that look of usually a lot of uh, telephoto lenses, shallow focus with like uh, a lot of steam coming out of, uh, yeah. sewer grates and stuff yeah. in the foreground. And she, you know, was trying to be a dancer, but she lives in this, uh, amazing loft, you know, that like it, it doesn't matter that it's not realistic because the movie's not really trying to be realistic. It's, it's got this, this extra coating on it, you know, mm-hmm. this, this sheen. And, um, I feel like if, if we're following your narrative, the Don Simpson created the Jerry Bruckheimer that we, um, that we have now, uh, what I'm seeing here with, with taking Adrian, Adrian Lynn or Adrian line. I never know how to say his name. Who made uh flash dance, um, taking a, uh, relatively new, um, relatively young director who is a stylist first and foremost. Yeah. And, um, giving them a ton of money to make a movie that is above all, uh, expensive and stylish and, um, and of the moment very much. so. Yeah. And uh, aesthetically, teased the whole nine yards to to be a movie movie do you know what yeah. i mean yeah uh and i again i don't love flash dance but um i do and it's maybe my least favorite adrian lynn or line movie um i've i've not seen it but uh it does seem to be something that we'll talk about um going forward is making making movies that you know some i, I feel like if Don Simpson had a skill, my, my interpretation of, of that, I'm sure he had plenty of skills, but, uh, I think he, the, I get the impression he had a talent for taking a script that was probably floating around, had some interest and imagining ways to, to pump it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that other people might not have. And I think, uh, now I haven't seen his second film as a producer, which is called thief of hearts. I've not that? seen it either. Okay. So that means we can jump right into Beverly Hills cop, which is a movie that I uh, rather like. And that's, mm-hmm. uh, this is where I'm getting some of that because Beverly Hills cop was a screenplay that had gone around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, as a, I think more of a straightforward action, yeah. um, cop movie. I think it was, a going to be a Sylvester Stallone vehicle, yeah. uh, at some point. Um, and then Eddie Murphy's rising star, uh, got attached to it. It became a comedy. um, but I think the opening you've seen Beverly Hills cop. Yeah. The sort of prologue, the opening of Beverly Hills cop is a 
great indicator of what the Simpson Bruckheimer brand would become mm-hmm. because this is a comedy. Um, right. First and foremost, yeah. um, about a Detroit detective. It's not about a, you know, superhero or a, even a, FBI or secret service agent or whatever. And yet the opening has a runaway truck, right? Yeah. Which I don't know if you know this. Um, they replaced the bumper on that runaway truck, uh, with instead of bumper material with like a steel beam so that when it crashed through stuff, it would really break uh, it apart. Okay. Yeah. So when it's, it's runaway and it's like, it, uh, there must be like two dozen cars that this thing just crushes and drives through stuff while Eddie Murphy is hanging onto the back flying around with a neutron dance is playing. Right. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the song doing is the it, neutron dance? I, I never, I don't think I ever knew the name of it. Um, I don't know. If I think of it, the name. I just know his lyrics. Oh, doing okay. The neutron dance. Right. Um, yeah, I guess I don't know. Yeah. I don't yeah. know. Uh, it's, it's a huge set piece in a way. And it's right at the beginning of the movie and it's a way of, I think now there's something I've talked about um, when we talk about like new blockbuster, like action tentpole type movies and how um, unceasingly and deadeningly loud mm-hmm. movies, these kind of movies are. And I feel like this is where that sort of thing yeah. uh, came in. It's just to start this comedy movie yeah, starring one of the guys from Saturday night live at this point, not, yeah. not a huge star to start that off with a sequence with that much destruction and noise and spectacle is um, impressive. But I think it also does the thing that we, uh, I equate with Don, Sim- Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer movies, which is kind of uh, lulling you into not even lulling you, maybe like punching you into not thinking too hard about this movie. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, it's so assaultive um, that it uh, just sort of flattens things out. And then you, you don't question stuff after that, right? Yeah, and you know it's it's interesting. I, I I'm I'm worried because I don't want to get too negative about Don Simpson because I feel like a lot of his instincts as a producer were such that I would probably f- be inclined to condemn them. Uh-huh. Uh Which is you know to make things always make things more accessible. You know, just perpetually. And, and I think this, okay, this is pure theory on my part. I think Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer working together. I think you got the, the loudness and the, and the broad action, um, and just the, the set pieces that a Jerry Bruckheimer really latches on to. And I have no doubt that that Don Simpson was a big part of that as well. But even with Beverly Hills Cop, there's uh, there's an inherent there can be an there can be a mainstream accessible quality to relationships as well. Mm-hmm. And when I look at Don Simpson's filmography as a producer, I do see a similar dynamic happening over and over again. Um, and I think it starts to a certain degree with Beverly Hills Cop, and it's which is, you know, the young rambunctious upstart, uh, bumping up against the establishment, which is often represented by, you know, an older guy. Now in this case you have judge Reinhold and John and the wonderful John Ashton. Yeah. Um, 
and both of them are often made to look silly, but we are also on their side. Yeah. They are the good guys. They aren't bad guys. And so, do you know, whenever I pass the Beverly Hills police station on Santa Monica Boulevard, okay. I imagine that the inside looks like it looks like on the inside of oh, Beverly no, Hills. College, obviously like a, a huge, like NASA type control <laughs> center. <laughs> Sorry. And so I, I feel like, um, by, you know, uh, so in our, in our, uh, movie journal, uh, and basically every time you've talked about the Marsh and you talk about a crowd pleaser mm-hmm. that now admittedly the Martian is probably a bit more intelligent than the movies of Don Simpson, and Jerry Bruckheimer. Um, and I'd say uncompromisingly so, but it is, it is unafraid to welcome in the whole family often deal with kind of broader emotions, broader, Mm -hmm. uh, ideas. And so there's nothing wrong with something wanting to, with a producer or director or whatever, wanting to make a movie accessible, um, and wanting to please a crowd. But I feel like the difference for me, and I'm sorry to be talking so much about Jerry Bruckheimer, but the two are linked so much, very much, you know, the, like, I can't latch on to, I can't latch on to Con Air or uh, Armageddon or Gone in 60 Seconds the way I can Beverly Hills Cop or Crimson Tide or even Days of Thunder or some of these other films because I feel like the certain relationships that were in those movies kind of disappeared when Don Simpson disappeared. The one exception for me being Enemy of the State where again you have this young kind of upstart who admittedly is very much out of his depth but then he he hits up against this old man played by this older man played by Gene Hackman who has who's very stodgy but very capable mm-hmm. and so and i feel like there's just something that is appealing to people about that dynamic uh between characters specifically male characters um and you would see it in other you know you've you've seen it in you know, I just re- I just watched Red River for the first time. You mm-hmm. have the young guy and the old guy. Like it's a very standard thing, and so I feel like some of the more accessible and broader elements that Don Simpson brought into it that again Jerry Bruckheimer seemed to not be that interested in is uh, the way characters can specifically male characters relate to each other, and so that's and I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. Nor do I think there's anything necessarily wrong with big action set pieces either. Um, no, provided, like said, I, provided they're used right. I like Beverly Hills Cop and I think I like our next movie, Top Gun. It's okay. been a long, long time since I've seen it, but here's something I want to talk about. Okay. When you talk, cause you're right. Top Gun has the same thing about the young upstart against the establishment here in yeah. the form of Tom Skerritt, right? Yep. It's been so long. Um, but when you say it like that, I imagine someone who hadn't seen these movies might picture more of the classic sort of David and Goliath type thing. But one thing that links a lot of these like Axel in Beverly Hills cop and, um, what's his name in uh, top gun Maverick Maverick in top gun is, um, and I'm completely cribbing this from team America world police world police or from, okay. uh, uh, yeah, Matt Stone and Trey Parker and their, uh, um, their assessment of Jerry Bruckheimer's movies, they're incredibly cocky. Sure. Like, yeah, it, and it does seem odd. It does seem counterintuitive to have your protagonist start off as someone arrogant. Yeah. But I think it's a confidence. And of course, of course, casting is a big part of it. You've got sure. Murphy and Tom Cruise in these two roles, um, where their confidence actually endears them to you. Whereas if yeah. you knew this person in real life or if they didn't, 
look or have the charisma, look like or have the charisma of Eddie Murphy or Tom Cruise, they'd be really off putting. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and I, because I feel like there's this feeling of, and by the way, if you wanted Cockney, uh, not Cockney, not that at all. Nope. If you wanted cocky in the eighties about to be about to get his comeuppance, you got Tom Cruise. It uh-huh. could be rain man, color of money, top gun days of thunder or uh hey sure what the hell born on the fourth of july that's a joke um but does like, he really get his comeuppance in top gun like uh he gets it's, humbled it's, by someone else dying comeuppance is right? not the right word it's just uh humility they're the yeah. humbled uh, achieving humility either by events or by uh well it's usually by events like someone tells him you can't do things this way and then he does it that way and then things go bad for him and then he starts to have a respect for the older guy or for the establishment and the real the realization of yeah they've been around a while and mm-hmm. yes they might be crusty old men but they also have a general idea of how things work um and so i feel like there's this attitude of boy it sure is fun watching this guy be cocky and and bold but it'd be nice to see that cockiness turn to actual confidence. Confidence, mm-hmm. I think is, you know what you can do and you're very, and there's a boldness there, but it's usually tempered with humility and a deeper understanding of how things work. Whereas cockiness is just brash. Um, and so it gives the character an arc and it gives us like, I want to be on the, I want to be on this guy's side as much as possible. How can that happen? Yeah. And that's what the film is. And that's what Top Gun is, I think. Um, what, what I want to talk about with Top Gun is, uh, and something that, I'm gonna, that I've already mentioned n- multiple times and I'm going to keep coming back to, which is how expensive the movie looks. <laughs> okay. Because you've got, you know, fighter jets. Those mm-hmm. don't come cheap yeah. uh, in the movie. But then you also got, and this is, I, uh, I feel like this is where we start to blur the lines between... Um, Don Simpson uh, as producer and Tony Scott as auteur. Right. But there's a shimmer to the movie. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like there's the shimmer of the, 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 the silver of the yeah. uh, fighter jets. There's the, um, you know, Tony Scott like shoots sort of through the, um, whatever you like flame exhaust from the back. Right. So there's like things don't look, so things are shimmering and there's smoke and, uh, there's a whole lot going on. Um, to the point where I've, I've heard the story that, um, when the studio saw first, the earlier, early cuts at the beginning of top gun of like dailies and stuff, they thought this guy's making some sort of impressionistic art film because <laughs> all they're getting are these like weird close ups, yeah. uh, uh, you know, um, of, of things as opposed to, uh, Tony Scott isn't giving like you uh, giving uh, you an informative master shot. Right. You know, he's giving a lot of close-ups. Um, it looks weird, but, uh, this goes back to what I was saying about Don Simpson hiring a visual stylist and giving a bunch of yeah. money and a kind of, uh, you know, surefire script that, you know, that doesn't take too many risks. I think, I think, uh, a, a way to talk about Don Simpson and the movies that he wanted to make one way or another is cutting edge. I want him to be cutting edge, whether it be the action mm-hmm. or the weight or just the sheer amount. Like I'm going to, I want people to see the money on the screen and whether it be large scale action films or a very stylistic and unusual way of shooting that is just going to keep people energized and engaged, you know, and that's Tony Scott all the way. And even though 
you know, you watch the, cause I, I just watched days of thunder. You watch those movies compared to what Tony Scott would become later. And you just mm-hmm. think like, well, those are, those are Jim Jarmusch films compared to, you know, Domino. <laughs> right. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, uh, I think Don Simpson, there's something to be said for a guy who's willing to take risks. And I think given what, you know, what you were just saying that people looked at the dailies and said, what the hell are you making here? Yeah. That's a risk, you know? Yeah. And I think that to his credit, he, when he, when I keep mentioning like stylists, he saw the importance of cinema as something, or at least to success, the success of a movie, the filmmaking as being something other than just a way of translating the story. Right. You know what I mean? Like he, right. he clearly saw that there was some importance uh, to presentation and to aesthetics yeah. and to doing something that would pull people in um, even before the story uh, began or, or hooked them or whatever. And that's, yeah. that's, it's to his credit that he, uh, you know, that people like Adrian Lynn Orline and, uh, Tony Scott um, uh, worked with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Next up is Beverly Hills Cop 2. I've only ever seen the first one. I've, me too. But you've seen Days of Thunder, which is his next one. Yes, that's true. And another Tony Scott movie, right? Yes. And you may recall, listeners, Wait, if you listen to the... What? Um, Beverly Hills Cop 2 uh, is also Tony Scott. Yeah. Okay. Did a, the first one's not. It's um, Martin Brest. Right, yes. Um, but clearly... Don, Don Simpson and Tony Scott. They locked got, into got, something. Got, got along like gangbusters. Uh, yeah, Days of Thunder. So listeners, if you managed to sit through our three-hour uh, movie journal, towards the end you would hear me get very frustrated about Days of Thunder. Um, that's as a movie. Uh, and just the content of it is just not the thing, just not a thing that interests me. Um, as a Don Simpson film, and I'm reluctant to say that because, you know, it's... A film that he produced. Yeah. Um, oh, it fits right That's in That's not the naming convention. Uh, right. All right. Yeah. Uh, it's, I mean, it is the perfect film between Top Gun and, let's say, The Rock. Or, more specifically, I'd say Crimson Tide. Because now you have brash, cocky, a, uh, competent, mm-hmm. skilled Tom Cruise. And you have him coming into... He's never... He's never driven a stock car in his life. Um, he's driven other things, but he's never done this. So he comes in pretty inexperienced, but still with the skills to, to make things happen. Pay the bills. To pay the bills. Oh, no. Huge paydays, David. Uh, I hate you so much. Um, and so, um, so he's coming into this well-established thing. So he's, and he does things his own way. So he's, he kind of runs counter to the establishment, but, and the establishment definitely has, uh, a face, you know, you've got Randy Quaid, you've got the wonderful Fred Dalton Thompson, who Mm. regardless of what you might think of his politics was a fucking great dependable character actor who just could like, I'll say this in 2008, if he had been elected president, we'd all be a lot calmer because you know what? We'd be terrified. <laughs> it's just like, it's like, Oh, dad's home. That's, that's what we would feel like with Fred Dalton Thompson. Anyway. Um, like, Oh, and by the way, like if it was, if it's the eighties or early nineties and you need, the, you need any establishment. Yeah. It's Fred Dalton Thompson, whether it be he, uh, on for red October, no way out. 
No, I didn't see No Way Out. Oh, you gotta see No Way Out. Um, it's great. And then when he was cast as uh, as the district attorney in Law and Order, he was right. marvelous. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. Uh, but he's not. So he's the face of the authority. But then, but he's like the head of the whole thing. So he's not going to be interacting with Tom Cruise that much. Instead, you have Robert Duvall, who is who's been around for years. He's this crusty old man. He know he builds cars. He knows how they work and he knows how to drive them. So now, so you have these wonderful, energetic, tense scenes between Tom Cruise and Robert Duvall. They're the best scenes in the film, no question. Uh, to me, they're infinitely more engaging than any of the racing sequences, mm-hmm. even though, again, you see the money on the screen, you see some pretty terrible wrecks, and it's just like, oh my gosh, that looks horrible. But these two guys and like the ego of the young guy and the stubborn and the stubbornness of the old guy just going head to head until they have a respect for each other. Uh, I feel like that is a, I don't know if maybe they happened upon it, but whatever it is, I think they saw that and they said, now that works. We need to do that again because we'll have the action We'll have the set pieces. That's going to be great. And certainly uh, Top Gun worked well for us, but we need a, we need a relationship at the core, you know, and then you also have Tom Cruise with Nicole Kidman and there's, so there's a relationship, uh, Mm a romantic relationship as well. And then there's a, a, a friendly rivalry between him and Michael Rooker. So there's a number of relationships, but the core is those two men. And so, uh, and that's, that is the thing is, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, uh, definitely made movies where yes, there was often a romantic subplot, but it was very much about men relating to other men, usually in a professional environment. Um, so yeah, I I feel like days of thunder as a Don Simpson type of, as a Don, Don Simpson film, uh, is a definite transition as far as, uh, content and emo- and the emotional tone. Uh, and and yet, what's interesting is that um, it was the end of their of Simpson and Bruckheimer's time with Paramount, mm-hmm. and they switched over to Disney, which is um, where Jerry Bruckheimer. I don't know if that's where he. Uh, no, that's not where the Transformers was made. But Jerry Pi- Bruckheimer stayed with Disney for a long time. Yeah, I mean pirates. Uh, uh, yeah, and yeah. well, uh, you keep forgetting Glory Road. Oh, um, yeah. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> But what's interesting to me is, uh, well, a couple of things, which is that the first film produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer uh, at Disney has nothing to do with anything we're talking about here. Yeah. It's The Ref, yeah. the movie that you and I both really like. Um, I don't know what to say about it. Uh, IMDb has, has him credited as executive producer instead of producer. Okay. I don't know if that That's means less hands-on. Um, but it, uh it or was, more hands on. I've heard. I've heard. I've heard yeah. either way. Yeah. Uh, so I don't. Uh, I don't know what that means, but I know that it uh, was um, as much as you and I like the movie. It was um, not not commercially successful. Yeah, I, I do find myself wondering, like, is this their version of an indie film? Because it's not a super expensive film. There are no, no. big actions. It's not an action film. Um, there, the set pieces are all emotional or comedic, and it doesn't have that look we're talking about. No, not at all. Yeah, it's that is that, is that Ted, Ted Demi? Demi? Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's very much a toned down thing. But when you think about 
rather than car crashes, it's it's all emotional histrionics. Like it's still <laughs> it's one could make the argument that it is every bit as over the top as any of their other right. movies. I'm not I'm not gonna like I'm not gonna bend over backwards in order to make it fit into this larger thing. Yeah. But I'm trying to, I am trying to find like any kind of commonality that like if they were going to make a comedy that is not an action comedy, I guess the ref is what you get. Well, which is it's still that cutting edge kind of thing too. Apparently they learned their lesson because yeah. they not only did not make another film like a ref, they didn't make another film for well I should say sorry. Um Oh, I was reading that wrong. So there's four years between Days of Thunder and The Ref. Okay. I don't know what uh, he was up to. Um, but then after The Ref failed, he um, jumped into high gear. Yeah. Three movies come out in 1995. The first of which is um, not the worst film ever, but it gave us Michael Bay and therefore is uh, one of my least favorite things to ever happen in movies. Okay. Uh, it's Bad Boys. Yeah. Um, and it is, so, it's, it's not one of the worst films ever, but it will, it will very directly spawn one of the worst films ever, which is its sequel. Yes. Um, but, um, Don Simpson was not around to see that. That's true. Um, bad boys is kind of like what you were saying about early Tony Scott, like doesn't seem as Tony Scotty as the Tony Scott of his later career. Yeah. And that's kind of true of bad boys. Like you definitely mm-hmm. see that, um, intense use of like, um, color timing i guess to make things uh look there's a real even more so than in tony scott's movies there's a real unreality to michael bay's movies yeah. like everything is orangish or brownish or like like he's, yeah. he's and this is before you know in a few years when we get into the technology that allow for really serious color grading which we'd see in mm-hmm. the later michael bay movies but um bad boys has a style first more than anything yeah and it does feel like um I guess um, not just because they're uh, black detectives, but because it's a um, comedic theoretically yeah. uh, an action comedy um, with, uh, with black detectives. I think then mm-hmm. it, it is sort of uh, similar in that way to Beverly Hills cop, but the, yeah. the two are, very, are almost night and day. Like I talked about uh, again, we're seeing uh, like, like what you're talking about with Tony Scott when I'm talking about here and with Don Simpson in general, we're seeing an upping of the ante in a lot of ways mm-hmm. because I talked about the opening of Beverly Hills cop being uh, really assaultive, but it is quaint compared to the action sequences in bad boys. Yeah. Uh, which again, I haven't seen it for a long time. I keep, I, I keep saying again when it isn't something I've said before. It's weird. Maybe you um, said it at some point in our 460 episodes, yeah, but it's like a tick that I'm developing when I'm saying again a lot. Um, Anyway, uh, when was the last time you saw Bad Boys? Oh my, it's been it's been a very long time. Although I do have a pretty good memory for it, oddly enough. Um, I think I was young enough that it uh, it's a thing. It's a movie that I liked, um, and I think the thing that I responded to most, more so than the action, was the relationship between these two guys. Yeah, um, and that's and Tay Leone. Absolutely, I like Tay Leone. Eh, I feel like she's kind of, she kind of overdoes it in, in everything. Oh yeah. When I was younger, I definitely had a crush on her though. Well, I can't argue with that. Obviously, obviously. <laughs> um, I'll, you know what? I do like her in Spanglish where oh, right. her, her oh, overdoing God. it very much as a function of the character. But anyway, um, yeah. And so I feel like the idea of Don Simpson making movies about male relationships mm-hmm. You didn't really have that in Beverly Hills Cop. You developed it 
with with Tom, with uh, Top Gun, yeah. where there's a bunch of guys. It's like I'm he's close with Goose, but he's also close with Tom Skerritt. And then there's the thing with uh, Iceman, played by Val Kilmer. Yeah, and you have all these well, things actually, developing. Um, we keep going back to Beverly Hills Cop, um, maybe because it's the one of, of these I've seen the most of the ones we talked about so far, at least. Um, but now you're talking about male relationships in a way that are that he's exploring them in interesting and interesting ways, but there's also a macho-ness. Sure. And, um, uh, I do think there's something as much as I like Beverly Hills Cop, um, uh, a little gross about the, um, the dynamic between Eddie Murphy and judge Reinhold where, um, Eddie Murphy as the street smart Detroit cop. Yeah. Is more manly or more masculine, I guess. Yeah. Than judge Reinhold as the, um, you know, pam, pam, pampered Beverly Hills cop yeah. and Judge Reinhold becomes more masculine. Um, and as the movie goes on, yeah. uh, by eventually firing a gun. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, you almost expect Eddie Murphy to like hire a prostitute for him or something uh, yeah. like that. Uh, and, but, and then that, that's, and that, that sort of, you ties into the, you know, locker room pissing contests of Top Gun, which is yeah. a movie as uh, macho as it is homoerotic. Yeah. Mm, it's the best combination. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And so, so there, I'm going to say, uh, I know we want to say good things, uh, but there is some stuff that I find kind of gross about that, about his male, male dynamics. Uh, and I would, too. I would say a lot of it is very, is very eighties. Um, but I think as, again, I think as the movies go along the exception of, well, we'll get to the rock later, but anyway, um, you know, cause, because to me, the pinnacle of all of this is crimson tide. Um, but again, we'll get to that later as well. So we'll get to that next. And I can't wait to hear you talk about it. Cause I don't know. I, I want to know what you mean by pinnacle, but let's talk okay. about bad boys first. So, um, so yeah, uh, so you have, they're exploring the, the idea of male relationships and top gun. Then you, then you get, a more focused version of that in uh, Days of Thunder, mm-hmm. and then you get to Bad Boys. Well, now it's a partnership. Now it's not one guy, and then everybody else is relating to him. Now it's two guys. They are friends. They are partners. They are inseparable. And now, like that's that's like a key thing. Um, and it's the first time that there have been two protagonists instead of one. Um, and so I think that's very interesting and because, and I think you'll also see it in Crimson Tide where I would say there are two leads as opposed to something like, um, like, uh, Days of Thunder where even though the scenes with Robert Duvall are the most magnetic, Mm -hmm. um, Duvall is a supporting character. He does have a bit of an arc, but, but he is a supporting character. And then, um, but yeah, the idea of, a central, a central male relationship, and then uh, several other offshoots of that. But now it's these two guys either connecting or butting heads yeah. being the most interesting thing emotionally. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's, and to me, the pinnacle of that is Crimson Tide. Yeah. Um, Let's again put a pin in that because I want to talk about bad boys once more in this male relationship thing. Because uh, we talked about how um, uh, I don't know. There's there, uh, we talked about the look of the movie. It's mm-hmm. glossy and almost sort of uh, gross looking to me, like a lot of Michael Bay's films. Uh, I think yeah. are um, over polished. Uh, um, but 
in terms of the male relationships, it is, yes, these two against the establishment. But I like that you mentioned they butt heads because I actually, one of the dynamics I do find interesting about the movie is that Martin Lawrence's character sometimes feels inferior yeah. to Will Smith's character because, uh, and part of that is because Will Smith's character comes from money and Martin Lawrence's character doesn't. I don't know. Yeah. This is all coming back to me. This, this, that's fun. That, that Will Smith's character is like a trust fund, uh, kid, I think. And like, doesn't like, he doesn't need this job. I don't think I remembered it being quite that specific, but I do remember the, the economic disparity between them. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so I, uh, I like that within this dynamic you're talking about, about uh, against, you know, an upstart against the establishment, Will Smith is almost a traitor to the establishment. He represent, he is of the establishment, uh, fighting against it, but also still holds that status over Martin Lawrence. Uh, even if it's all in Martin Martin Lawrence's character's head. And I, speaking of this idea of of, more analysis and thought that uh, I've given to bad boys in a long time, quite possibly more (laughs) analysis and thought than anybody (laughs) has ever given bad boys, including the makers of it. Um, one thing that I did want to mention though, is you said inferiority that Martin Lawrence felt inferior to Will Smith's character. And, um, and then I made a little joke in my head. It's like, well, I mean, that's, appropriate one has gone on to be nominated for you know a couple of oscars and the other was martin lawrence but then i realized well no at the time they were both tv actors and one was like a former musician one was a former comedian that then became sitcom actors and now they're in this giant action extravaganza and they are very much equals as far as in our eyes and i thought there's probably a bit of a risk in having these two guys be your leads but i guess i mean it worked out with beverly hills cop um but I don't know. So maybe they were just trying to capture that yeah. again, but it could have, it could have tanked. Like they could have been determined, you know, people could have decided these guys can't carry a movie and they don't have a, a lot of chemistry, even though they did. Um, so I guess that was, that was kind of a risk and it's something I haven't thought about until just now, actually. Um, okay. Let's get to Crimson, Crimson Tide. Because, okay. Um, I see what you're saying in terms of being a pinnacle of this male relationship thing. Mm hmm. But it also feels like an outlier. Um, it's an outlier first in the sense that I think it's the best film he ever produced. No question. Um, but it's missing one key ingredient we're talking about here. Because the two men you're talking about, Denzel mm-hmm. Washington's character and Gene, ha- Gene Hackman's character, are men. Do you know yeah. what I mean? That doesn't have that brash young upstart. Like, right. it's not the guy who, you know, uh, looks like he would play well to the MTV crowd or whatever yeah. people used to say uh, 20 plus years ago. Yeah. Um, it it's it feels like a more adult movie because it all its characters act like adults. Yeah, uh, and so it that's where I that's where I don't necessarily see it as being the pinnacle. Yeah, in this case, um, yeah, I, I, it's my favorite of his movies. My favorite of I mean, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's um, and I think it's. I think there was a maturity there because there is something simplistic about the young brash guy comes along the old crusty guy, crusty but benign as Patty Shavsky would say, uh-huh. um, the crusty but benign guy teaches him the error, the, the, the small error of his ways. Cause he is our protagonist. So we have to be on board with him. Uh-huh. So he makes a couple errors here and there, but now, but by the end he is achieved perfection. Um, there's something very simplistic about that. There's nothing simplistic about Crimson Tide. Um, you, 
and that's the thing. There is, I wouldn't say there's a cockiness to Denzel Washington's character. There is a confidence that borders on, that just borders on haughtiness and borders on moral superiority. The, especially when you see the way Gene Hackman comes across as just like a very no nonsense, a very patent type character who, Hey, he's got his orders and he's going to follow him. And yeah, it's shitty. I yeah. wish I didn't have to do it, but I do. Well, I really think when you talk about that, his confidence, I really think that, um, the open secret now that Quentin Tarantino, uh, sure. Uh, wrote a huge, uh, a lot of the dialogue. Oh, you mean that silver surfer discussion? Uh, <laughs> right. Uh, definitely that, but also, um, you know, we just talked about in the movie journal about Quentin Tarantino and uh, race. Mm-hmm. And I definitely think he puts, there's a lot of, um, sometimes under the surface and sometimes it comes up to the surface, um, race, racial tension between Denzel yeah. Washington and Gene Hackman. I think part of the way that Denzel Washington's character carries himself um, with the, with that confidence is kind of a defense mechanism. He sure. knows that uh, being a minority and going into this yeah. world, um, he's maybe got some more eyes on him, some more skepticism of him. Yeah. And so he has to be above reproach in a way, but yeah. also has to carry himself like his own man. He can't yeah. be uh, bowing to, uh, to everyone else and trying to please everyone. So I think that, uh, I, I, I do think you're right that the character, the character does, it does seem a little bit haughty, but I do think it is coming from a place of, uh, self-defense in a way well and it's there's a and there's definitely i think a dynamic not unlike that of in the heat of the night um uh-huh. you know and people certainly have compared yeah. denzel washington to uh latter-day sydney poitier um and i feel like there's a lot there um and speaking of the idea of this racial tension and the, and just this pressure cooker well the name of the submarine is the alabama which is uh-huh. not necessarily known for its racial uh-huh. unity um and so i think there definitely is that and so um but that's the thing even though we are probably more on board with denzel washington there is an air of of moral superiority whether it's a defense mechanism or not it's definitely there and gene hackman's character is older has more experience and and is just a career, he's a career soldier. And so to see, for him to look at this younger guy who just strolls on in and then acts like he owns the place and mm-hmm. that he, he knows how things work. Were I Gene Hackman's character, I, I might feel frustration at that as well. And so that's one of the things that I love about Crimson Tide is that while one person is erring on the side of caution, which is probably a good thing, um, you know, at the end of the film, uh, Jason Robards is like an, uh, an uncred- uncredited admiral in the film. Mm-hmm. He says, he's like, he goes in the end, Mr. Uh, Denzel Washington's character's name is Hunter. He's like, in the end, Mr. Hunter, you were right, but you were both right. And you were both wrong, you know? Um, and so it's, and there's a, there's definitely a maturity there and a genuine desire to like explore, how horrifying it is, <laughs> how horrifying nuclear warfare is, you know? Yeah. Um, but I do feel like, and there's all kinds of male relationships there. You know, you have Denzel Washington and then Viggo Mortensen who are like best friends off ship. And now they are kind of at odds with each other a little bit. You have George, uh, George Zunza who is the captain of the boat. And he, 
is forced to side with Denzel Washington, even though he's been loyal to, yeah. uh, to Gene Hackman his whole his entire career and so there's all these and it's just it's it's all men on this on this boat in this very intense situation and one dog and one dog absolutely a little rat dog is uh Viggo Mortensen refers to him and so and you've got James Gandolfini you've got Rocky Carroll you've got uh Matt Craven um Steve Zahn Steve Zahn that's right Ryan Phillippe's in it yeah um spoilers but Steve Steve Zahn he eats it yeah, he's not doing great. And uh, Ricky Schroeder is not happy about it. Um, so I feel like this is emotionally the pinnacle. Not when I say pinnacle, I don't even I don't necessarily mean this is the quintessential. This is the perfect example because it is a bit of an outlier. I mean, it's a pinnacle because I feel like they don't they don't beat it. Uh, Bruckheimer and, and Don Simpson, when they come when it comes to exploring in a real honest way, that is still, I think, crowd pleasing. Oh yeah. Um, I think you don't get better than this movie and this dynamic. Yeah. Probably due partially to the script, but also the actors involved. I mean, you yeah. can't. You know, you've got two of the best actors of, of all time uh, in those lead roles. But uh, so yeah, yeah. L- listeners, if you haven't seen Crimson Tide, uh, go and watch it. It's one of the best. It's uh, absolutely amazing. I yeah, love it so I, much. I love it. Um, but that doesn't mean it is without uh, it's the the other Tony Scott, Don Simpson isms um, in terms of its its look. I'm definitely reminded of um, before they get on the submarine mm-hmm. when it's like. Oh, you know, uh, the scene in the submarine movies where it's raining before they get on the submarine, we're going to do the biggest version of that yeah. ever where it is yeah. just pouring. We want there to be about a eh, 5% less water above ground than, than, <laughs> than below the water. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so it definitely does have that, that spectacle and that bigness and that loudness yeah. uh, that we're talking yeah. about, um, which is, and I think maybe the reason that I don't think of Crimson Tide as like a, a standard big movie, even though, you know, you have torpedoes and stuff no matter how big Tony Scott gets, yeah, it's still in a confined space. And so yeah. it's by its very nature limited. Yeah. And thanks to Quentin Tarantino, you've got a climax, which is the two characters not shooting at each other, punching each other, but talking about horses. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and both, and both actors. Oh, I just want to watch it right now. <laughs> yeah. That's how I feel too. Actually. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Um, Next up is Dangerous Minds, which I'd never saw. I just I, know it from the uh, the the Coolio song, obviously a big hit. Um, so yeah, I haven't seen it. Uh, I haven't seen it either. But I do. You know, you uh, the fact that the main character is a woman is a is a fun thing. Uh, another, a particularly outlier, a particularly tough woman, um, and it speaks to now that I think about it. I mean, ha- look at how many of these movies. In, have a racial element. You have this white teacher going into like a black school and showing that she's not intimidated by them. You know, mm-hmm. you have a, a black Detroit. Is that really the story? Well, that just I've kind of. Oh, because that's kind of patronizing, right? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's more to that. I mean, but at the same time, it does seem a little bit like, oh, geez, this is not. Uh, what is it? Uh, to sir with love. Is that it? I don't okay. remember. I don't know. But, um, but yeah, so you, ha- and, and I'm sure it's more complex than that. I know a lot of people that really like dangerous minds and I'm sure it's, it, it winds up being a mutual respect. I know, thing. I, 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 I'm not going to hypothesize. I'm sorry, everybody. I haven't yeah, seen I'm the troubled film. about the baseline assumption that 
You should be intimidated by a group of black people. <laughs> well, like in a tough inner city school. Right. I know that's but the way you, you know. said it. It's like, it's commendable that you can stand up in front of a group of black yeah. people oh, and not I, shit your pants. Oh, I couldn't do that. <laughs> oh boy. Oh, when I worked, uh, when I worked at that blockbuster in Chicago and every day I would, I would, uh, you know, I would kiss a crucifix next to my door and walk out. Uh, anyway, put on my bulletproof vest underneath my shirt. Um, but yeah, I mean, think about it. You've got, uh, you know, this, this Detroit, a black Detroit cop in very white Beverly Hills. You've got uh, a black executive officer and a white captain in Crimson Tide. Mm-hmm. You've got this white female teacher in the midst of all these uh, inner city black students. Um, you have two young black protagonists in Bad Boys who are, you know, doing things their own way in the midst of white uh, police establishment. There's, there's a lot of that here in their films. Yeah. That's something that, that I don't think I realized until just now. I mean, I, that there, I don't think there's really any in top gun. I don't think there's any yeah. in, um, days of thunder, right. But in a good portion of these, that does, right. there does seem to be an, uh, an examination. And Jerry Bruckheimer would carry it over into his later career. See, for instance, glory road when that oh that brave bass that brave white basketball coach is just like all right guys i'm not scared of you uh (laughs) listeners we are being facetious just uh throwing that out there just making sure you know and i I didn't i wasn't sure until just now if you even remembered which one glory road was i know it's josh lucas right yeah i saw it yeah um Um, so so that brings us to the rock the last film of his career in fact i think he died before it was released okay um, from based on my research okay he died in january of 1996 it, it didn't come out until june of that year okay um so by my math he uh, had passed already okay when it came out <laughs> um, uh, and this is i think of all the things we've talked about and then being over the top and exaggerated and uh uh, pumped up, puffed up. Um, the rock is kind of, to me, a demarcation line where it crosses into ridiculousness because the rock is a crazy premise. Yes. Yes. Very um, much so with a crazy, like a really stupid lead, like a lead character that is so it's like, which one are you talking about? <laughs> I'm talking about the Nicholas cage character okay. who is, um, supposed to be. And I don't know if this is, Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, mm. Michael Bay, or Nicolas Cage. Probably some combination Let's of all say of all them. the above. But his character is, in theory, a nerd, right? Yeah. He's the scientist who yeah. works with chemicals and stuff. Yeah. Um, and he's always whining about his best. Ugh. Do you, re- you remember the quote that I'm referencing? Oh, oh, my God. That horrible quote. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, but he becomes uh, an action hero and is also it just like incredibly in, in great shape. Oh yeah. He's right? going to be okay. No, I mean like physically like, yeah. uh, he's for a guy who works in a lab all day, he's like ripped, um, and becomes an action hero in a way that doesn't, um, make any, it doesn't need to make any actual sense. Yeah. Uh, it's because it's all spurred on by an even more ridiculous, uh, construction, which is the Sean Connery character. Oh yeah. Who is some kind of, 
political prisoner who escaped from Alcatraz that no one, but no one knows about it. I'm, I'm, it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, and then, uh, so then Ed Harris takes Alcatraz hostage. Yes. There's a racist caricature of a black tourist, uh, being one of the people being held hostage. That's right. <laughs> that, that's I like, do. okay. Now our, the that's precursor to, to the, uh, transformers robot, right? Oh boy. Robots. Uh, There's two of them. Robot. I never saw it, but uh, I know there were a lot of complaints. Um, and I, I, it, it gets so, rid- it, it gets more and more ridiculous to the point where Nicholas Cage, the nerd, is killing a guy with a rocket and making jokes about really unwieldy and unfunny jokes about the Elton John song Rocket Man. Do you remember that? Oh my gosh. Do you remember no. that? Well, I mean, I remember the scene. I don't remember the quote unquote jokes. No, he says like, he, he's like asking the guy if he likes Elton John. And he's like, do you like that song Rocket Man? And he's like, I only asked because it's you. You're the rocket man. And then he like launches the rocket into the guy and the guy flies out the window propelled by the rocket mm. and then lands impaled on a fence. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, Although I will say that if you're going to have a nerd character and you decide this guy would attempt to do a one liner, <laughs> that's it's just like, OK, hang on. Bear with me. <laughs> Let's just just follow my logic here. And that know? is not the way that it is presented. I'm sure not. No. Um, and then, yeah, so it's got the, yeah, it's got the line about why you at your best and the prom queen and, the, yeah. um, and it's got, uh, doesn't it seem like Ed it, Harris and Michael Bean, uh, pretending they're in a better movie, no, uh, <laughs> right? Uh, that's no question about it. And that's actually one of the things I, I wanted to talk about. But what I was going to say is that prom queen line, doesn't it feel like they left off something and it should be whether she wants to or not. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, uh, and also whenever I hear that line, I'm like, wait, this guy's how old and he's Scottish. Do they have the prom? He, kn- he knows it's, proms. I know, he's been in a, he's been in a underground jail cell for uh, 40 years at that point or something. Yeah, I guess so. Boy, that's dumb. Years. That's a dumb thing. Um, yeah, the rock is not a good movie. I remember, I remember liking it for a long time primarily because of Ed Harris and just, and really liking the idea that this villain is sympathetic and thinking that was actually pretty bold. And what's interesting. And and now that I think about it, how many characters in the films that we've talked about, how many characters are wholly unsympathetic? I can't think of any. Yeah. Even, uh, even Iceman. Yeah. Comes around. Yeah. I mean, obviously if the, the, you know, if you're a cop is like, okay, we're going after criminals. They're not, we're not going to see much of them because more about the dynamic on the other side. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I feel like, I don't know. It's, it's, if they take the time to give a character any, any moments, they'll let us see something there. And I feel like Ed Harris's character. And I think it also might have, and this might, I, I can't speak to this specifically, but when you talk about like Judge Reinhold, we we think he's adorable. We think he's funny. I don't think we have any contempt for the character. But if we mm-hmm. were going to have contempt for any character in these films, it would probably be an unmanly man. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why, of course, Ed Harris is allowed to be sympathetic because he's a man of action and yeah. you know a yeah. man that is extremely capable. So 
but you know what? I haven't seen all of these films, and some of them I haven't seen recent enough to be able to speak definitively in that way. But what I will say is, um, while you know, when when you look at the Nicolas Cage and and Sean Connery dynamic, as opposed to the Denzel Washington, Gene Hackman dynamic. I mean, you just see the horrible version of it <laughs> and the great version of it. Yeah. Um, but <clears throat> when you look at like the Maverick and Iceman dynamic and just the begrudging respect, and then you look at that wonderful scene with Michael Bean and Ed Harris, where you see like, there's a real respect. There's like a respect among men, even if they're on the other side, which you got some of in Crimson Tide. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. That's, that's another element of masculinity that they seem to want to explore is almost that old, almost like an old, uh, I mentioned Patton at some point. Did I, I don't remember. Oh, cause I was talking about, yeah, Gene Hackman reminded me of Patton. Oh, okay. And so that idea of, yes, I'm going against a Nazi. I'm going against Rommel, but damned if he's not really skilled at what he does, he's kind of a genius, you know? And that's a thing that I that I get from their films is is hey I may not be on this guy's side but but god damn it I respect him you know uh, that and it's funny thing. you mention that because um, the opposite is on display from Michael Bay which is um, and something we'd see uh, reach its pinnacle in Bad Boys too um, but a complete lack of respect for human life mm-hmm. in The Rock like yeah uh, uh, and this is something that I don't want to chalk up just to um, Michael Bay, uh, but to the Jerry Bruckheimer. And I I guess in this case, Don Simpson, because it's in Con Air too. Like if you take away the shimmer and sheen and gloss and everything, like there's some really ugly, grisly deaths in, in, in these movies. Um, and like in, in the rock, like there's the guy who like Sean, Sean Connery makes like an air conditioning unit or something fall on the guy's head. Mm-hmm. And he's like, his leg is twitching after he's dead. Do you remember this part? Uh, I don't. And Nicholas Cage is like kind of, uh, freaked out by it. And it's like played for like comedy, but yeah. this isn't, if this were a dark comedy, then you could get away with that sort of thing. Right. But it's a lack of respect. Well, and um, you, and you have that scene. That's the thing you have. You have that scene with the Navy SEALs and the Marines. And that nobody wants to shoot at each other. Yeah. And so in that moment, and and then the Navy SEALs, because they are, you know, they're, they're below, they have the low ground or whatever it is, um, that they just get massacred. Um, and that is treated as a terrible thing. Now, obviously they're the good guys, so it would be seen as terrible, but when Ed Harris dies, that is also seen as terrible. Um, so there is a certain degree when it comes to characters that deserve our respect, um, or that are even developed a little bit, uh, we can mourn them. That's a, that's okay. But if it's like, Oh, if it's a thug, Oh, just throw how many air conditioners do we have i don't know if it was an air conditioning but something big fell on his head and then his leg was twitching and it was gross and then there Uh, was the the grisly death of i believe was it william Forsythe, who uh who's like who's like uh ed harris's right hand man yeah and then they take like the one of those little green chemical balls and like shoves it in his mouth and he just like he's basically it's like he's on mars and total recall or something like that yeah yeah Um, that's right oof yeah. So um, the rock is dead. I feel like there's a, 
I forget exactly the way you phrase it, but like, I feel like that's the beginning of the end. I mean, and I yeah, don't mean to say. The demarcation line is what, yeah. I, what I said. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and there's like more complaints I have about The Rock, by the way, which is like even before it turns into an Alcatraz movie, there's a, a Hummer, a Humvee chase through San Francisco that goes on for, I don't know, 85 minutes it, it's way long. Yeah. And um, uh, this is more of a Michael Bay thing, I think. But there's the the guy who owns the Humvee calls the car phone. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you remember this? Yes. Um, and that's the um, unless you're. Scottish, like Sean Connery, foreigners are funny in Michael Bay yeah. movies. You know, of course, foreign accents are played for laughs uh, in, in his movies, and I find that so uncomfortable uh, and exhausting. Um, and then, of course, there's the shot that I hate uh, at the end of The Rock, which because it feels like it's a shot that was like, let's design the end of the movie so we have a great shot for the trailer. Yeah. Which is him kneeling with, with the, the flares. With the flares uh, or this, the, the jets. flares or they smoke things. Whatever they are. Whatever, they, yeah, while, yeah. while the jets uh, fly over his head. Yeah. Uh, I hate how constructed um, yeah. that shot is. Yeah. It's so fascinating. And I recognize that, you know, it's different directors and that sort of thing. But it is so fascinating to juxtapose Crimson Tide and The Rock. Yeah, because they're both, you know, military movies. There's threat of uh, terrorist bombs. There's an old man and a young man. There's all this stuff. And yet they're so horribly different, which is why I do, which is why I say the Crimson Tide is the pinnacle, not merely of quality, but of all the things that they that Don Simpson in his films explored. It's all done best okay yeah in crimson tide and i would not i'm not sure if i'd say worst in the rock but the rock really hearkens the worst all right well this was fun yeah Um, r.i.p don simpson because i'd be interested i it'd be interesting to see how things would have progressed uh had he been around because it's entirely possible you know, he passes, he dies in January. There's still a lot of, t- there's still a lot of posts, uh-huh. uh, yeah. on that film and who knows where he would have landed on it. I, yeah, I guess we'll never know what Don Simpson's glory road would have been. Like. Absolutely. Yeah. You can find us at battleship That's where all of our movie reviews are in our podcast. This one, all the other podcasts in the BP fleet. Uh, you can email us at david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com. You can follow me, David, on Twitter at um, Davey Pretension. You can follow Tyler on Twitter at Tyler Pretension. Now, uh, your other podcast is called More Than One Lesson. That's true. What's going on there? Well, let's see. Um, At the time that this is being posted, uh, our latest mini-sode is about um, William Friedkin's The French Connection. And then coming up in a few days, uh, we'll be doing an episode about Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs with the companion film Patton. Apparently apparently I've got Patton on the brain. All right. Uh, My other podcast is called Hey, Watch This with Paul and David. Uh, We talk about TV over there. Um, Paul this week wants me to watch the series premiere premiere of Angel from Hell, the new uh, Jane Lynch sitcom. I, because I don't want to watch any more new shows, uh, have picked this week's episode of Modern Family mm-hmm. with guest stars Keegan-Michael Key oh, all right. and Ray Liotta as himself. Hey, also that's that's great. I yeah. like that. So uh, that's what's going on over at Hey, Watch This. Um, and thanks for listening. We'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.
This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.